Job chapter number 9, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, Then Job answered and said, I know it is so of a truth. But how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered? which removeth the mountains, and they know not, which overturneth them in his anger, which shaketh the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble, which commandeth the sun, and it riseth not, and sealeth up the stars, which alone spreadeth out the heavens, and treadeth upon the waves of the sea, which marketh Arcturus, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south which doeth great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without number. Lo, he goeth by me, and I see him not. He passeth on, but I perceive him not. Behold, he taketh away, who can hinder him? Who will say unto him, What doest thou? If God will not withdraw his anger, the proud helpers do stoop under him. How much less shall I answer him and choose out my words to reason with him? Whom though I were righteous, yet would I not answer, but I would make supplication to my judge. If I had called and he had answered me, yet would I not believe that he had hearkened unto my voice. For he breaketh me with a tempest and multiplieth my wounds without cause. He will not suffer me to take my breath, but filleth me with bitterness. If I speak of strength, lo, he is strong. And if of judgment, who shall set me a time to plead? If I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. Though I were perfect, yet would I not know my soul. I would despise my life. This is one thing, therefore I said it. He destroyeth the perfect and the wicked. If the scourge slay suddenly, he will laugh at the trial of the innocent. The earth is given unto the hand of the wicked. He covereth the faces of the judges thereof. If not, where and who is he? Now my days are swifter than a post. They flee away. They see no good. They are passed away as the swift ships, as the eagle that hasteth to the prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my bitterness, my heaviness and comfort myself, I am afraid of all my sorrows. I know that thou wilt not hold me innocent. If I be wicked, why then labor I in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet shalt thou plunge me in the ditch and mine own clothes shall abhor me. For he is not a man as I am that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that we might lay his hand upon us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. Let's read verse 33 once again. It's our text this morning. Job in his complaint cries out, and says, neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd speak to hearts and glorify your Son. I'd ask that if there's one amongst us that's lost, you'd show them their need of Calvary. Lord, one that's backslidden, that you'd in loving compassion draw them close unto you. 
Father, I pray if there's one discouraged, you'd encourage them, one that's haughty, that you'd base them. But God, we just ask that you do all things right and well, and you always do. Father, help us to be submitted to the Holy Ghost this morning, both in His leading and also in His speaking. And we'll be sure to thank you for it. We ask all these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The book of Job is probably one of the most fascinating books in all the Word of God. We believe it to be the oldest book in the Word of God. It has no mention to the law. We know that Genesis was recorded by Moses. I know there's some dispute about that, but I see no reason to dispute it whatsoever. Uh, Moses would have recorded Genesis, and so uh, when Moses sat down to write down these things, it includes uh, uh, the when he sat down to write Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, which included the law. We know that Moses was the one to whom God gave the law, and so we understand that when Moses wrote it, the law existed. However, in the book of Job, in all of the uh, 40-some-odd chapters, you'll not find a single mention of the law. We believe it to have been written before the law was given. We believe Job to have been a patriarch uh, out of uh, the land of us, and we believe that he was a man that was righteous and eschewed evil. The theme of the book of Job is this question, why do the righteous suffer? It's interesting to me that the first question that God answered is the very question that men are still asking today. And I was telling my Sunday school class this morning that most any time that you listen to a debate between an atheist and a theist, between a man that rejects God and a man that accepts God, uh, one of the questions that is always asked is the question, why is there so much suffering in the world? Well, the book of Job undertakes explaining to us and giving us at least some uh, semblance of understanding of why the righteous do suffer. But, uh, you know, I've been thinking about the book of Job. I've been thinking about all the sermons that I've heard on the book of Job. I'm sure you've heard plenty. I've preached several here. Uh, and preachers, most of the time, they will talk about the uh, historical narrative of the life of Job. And we'll talk about the end of that historical narrative. We'll talk about the beginning of Job. We'll talk about the end of Job. A lot of times we'll preach and talk about some of the glowing statements that Job made. He said that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He said, though he slay me, speaking of the Lord, yet will I trust in him. He said that he knoweth the way that I take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job said, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at that latter day upon the earth. And there's all these beautiful glowing statements that Job makes. But very rarely do we ever hear a sermon that undertakes to explain the context of what's being spoken of. Uh, you'll find that the book of Job uh, is the longest dialogue in all the Word of God. And it presents the discussion between four men and their friend Job. Most say, well, there's only three men. And that's true that the very beginning of the book of Job says that his three friends came to him, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. But we find when we get later on in the book that a young man by the name of Elihu had showed up to put in his two cents as well. And back and forth these men go as they discuss the situation of Job. As you read through the book of Job, you'll find a lot of wisdom. I would propose to you that it is probably the greatest theological and philosophical conversation recorded for us. They're asking the biggest question. They're giving the biggest answers. They're undertaking to climb a mountain of logic and reason and of theological thought. 
In chapter number 8, and we'll probably touch on some of them, we have the discussion of a man, the dialogue of a man named Bildad, a Shuite. And he begins to explain to Job about the righteousness of God. And let me just give you a basic theme of what they said. Uh, All three of his friends said the same thing. said, Job, you've done something wrong and that's why you're suffering. Could I say to you that if we suffered always because we did wrong, we'd all be suffering all the time. I don't care who you are. You wake up in the morning, you're flesh and bone, just like I am. You sin, you do wrong, you mess up, you fail, and if you don't think you do, you got nobody fooled but yourself. We all sin, we all do wrong, and if suffering was always a consequence of sin, then we would always be all the time suffering. But we find that sometimes we do not suffer because of our sin. Sometimes we suffer for our sanctification. We suffer because God is purifying us. Sometimes we suffer for God's glorification because He's gaining glory out of it. Sometimes we suffer for the consolation of others. We find that to be true of the life of Job. Uh, You might say, why did Job have to go through what he went through so that me and you, friend, could sit here today and look at the life of Job and the faithfulness of God? I mean, more than anything, that's why Job went through what he went through. We look at his life and we see suffering, but we see the faithfulness of God. Job asks an interesting question at the beginning of this chapter, and I believe it is really the thrust of the heart's cry of every lost person concerning their relationship with God. Look what he says in verse number 2. He says, I know it is so of a truth. And you say, what does he mean by that? Well, he's speaking of Bildad's statements that he's just made. He says, I know what you've said about the righteousness of God is true, Bildad. But then he goes on to ask this question, but how should man be just with God? Boy, isn't that really the question on everybody's lips today? What's the way to heaven? How do we get there? What do we have to do? Who do we pray to? What do we have to sacrifice? What do we have to do? What is the way to heaven? Well, I go ahead and tell you, and you all know this, that the answer has already been given. In John chapter 14, Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But as Job asked this question, you have to understand that in the context of his suffering, this was a very vital and important question. Job did not have an answer to this question. He's seeking to understand. He understands that he is at all with God, and he says, how can this be rectified? How can I be just with God? I want to take a few moments this morning, and I want to look at a few things that Bildad said, and I want to look at a few things Job said, and then I want to look at the answer found in verse Number 33. In chapter number 8, and we're not going to take all the time that we could to read it, but the holiness of God is in view. Do you realize we have a holy God? I don't think we really recognize holiness in the true and proper sense. We think of holiness as justness, but it is not. We think of holiness as goodness, but it is not. We think of holiness as morality. But it is not. Holiness is part of the essence of God. And it essentially means that God does not have the capacity to do aught but right. He cannot look upon sin. He cannot accept sin. It is contrary to who He is. And you might say, well, you know, God, he, he's, you know, he, he's pretty hard-nosed, didn't He? No, that's His essence. He could not accept sin and still be God. Uh, What makes Him God is the fact of who He is. 
He cannot look upon sin. He cannot uh, permit sin. He cannot excuse sin. He cannot allow sin. And the holiness of God is what Bildad presents. Essentially, he says to Job, he says, the problem, Job, is not with God. The problem is with you. Because God is holy and God always does all things right. Boy, that's contrary to the ideology of today, isn't it? I mean, today, if a man's life messes up and goes to nothing, immediately we start blaming God. It's amazing to me how many people, and you'll hear them talk all the time uh, about uh, all the killing that's been done in the name of religion. Have you heard people talk about that? And they'll talk about all the suffering. They don't talk about the killing fields, do they? They don't talk about all of the killing in the communist countries where atheism was the state religion. There's been a lot of killing done in the name of atheism too, hasn't there? The fact is, it's it's not about uh, those people are not killing because of what they believe. They're killing because they're lost and undone and looking for something to fill their life. That's why they do what they do. And we're always quick to rush and to blame God. But I want you to notice what Bildad says. Look with me in verse number 3. Bildad is speaking in chapter 8 and verse number 3. And he makes this question in the form, or this statement in the form of a question. He says, doth God pervert judgment, or doth the Almighty pervert justice? Now, we would call this a rhetorical question. You say, what's a rhetorical question? A rhetorical question is a question that's so obvious it doesn't even need a response. We understand that God cannot look upon unholiness and remain God. Now, this is an absolute immutable truth. We need to to emblazon this upon our minds. That as a sinner, we are directly at ought with God. You say, I don't like that, preacher. Well, that's the truth. That's the truth. You were born a sinner into this world, just like I was. And we stand at ought with God. And listen to me. Love was not enough. I knew. I I knew everybody would look at me like I didn't know what I was talking about. Love was not enough without a sacrifice. People talk all the time about a loving God. God can be loving and still not compromise His holiness. You know that? Just because He judges sin, that doesn't mean He is not loving. Do you grasp that we deserve hell? We were, I really think we struggle with that because we make excuses for ourselves. We all do it. I mean, this preacher does it, and I'm sure you do it. We all make excuses. We all think we're pretty good. But do you realize what God's standard is? We find here an uncompromising standard. The Bible tells us that the Old Testament law was the standard by which God would measure a man's holiness. It was not given so that a man might have a bridge to God, but it was given as a barrier to God to show men their inability to stand uh, up next to the righteousness of God. It was given as a schoolmaster, the book of Galatians says, to bring us to Christ. And the Old Testament law was not given to bring everybody in, but the Old Testament law was given that every mouth would be stopped, Romans says, and that all the world would become guilty before God. What I'm saying this morning is this. We don't measure up to God. And just because we think He ought to forgive us, that's not enough for Him to forgive us. Just because we would shake our fist at God and say, it's unfair of you to send me to hell, that's not enough to keep us out of hell. Just because we would shake our fists and cry from the heavens and say, oh God, if you love me, you'll save me, that's not enough. There's got to be something else. We find that Job, and by the way, you've got to understand that Job is not looking at Calvary. 
There is no Calvary when Job is writing this. Job sees only the vast chasm between him and a holy God. Bildad is not uh, speaking in platitudes that warm the heart and soothe the soul. Bildad is speaking in absolute truths when he says God will not pervert His holiness or compromise His justice. It does not matter what this world thinks. It doesn't matter how much we plead. God is holy and God is staying holy. So how can a man be just? With God. See, it presents a, a quandary to us, a problem. We understand the holiness of God. We see an uncompromised standard. But look at verse number 20 of chapter number 8. Verse number 20, Bildad makes this statement. He says, Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoers. Look at verse 6. Bildad looks at Job and he says, If thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. So we see that Bildad says that God has an uncompromising standard. God will not just ignore or slight his holiness for us. But he also backpedals, I won't say backpedals, he shows the flip side of the coin and says by the same token, God also has an unbiased standard. Listen, God was not bluffing when he gave the law. If a man could live perfectly, perfectly, he could have had some remnant of fellowship with God. It still couldn't have absolved his sin nature. But he could have had some remnant. God set these standards for fellowship. But do you know what God knew about you and me? He knew that we weren't perfect. He knew that we weren't perfect. We cannot be perfect. We cannot be sinless. But God is not biased. God didn't set up a no-win situation so He could sit on the throne in heavens and laugh at us. God is willing to save anybody if they can be found pure in Him. Now, you stick with me. This is all going to click here in a moment. When we get down to verse 33, you're going to see what I'm saying. You see, God is unbiased. He says, Job, it's not a matter of you. It's your actions. Job, it's not who you are. God would accept you, but your sins, like God told the nation of Israel in the uh, book of Isaiah, your sins, your iniquities have separated you from your God. God is willing to receive you. It's just your sin presents a problem. He shows us an uncompromising standard. He shows us that it is an unbiased standard. But now here we have the question. Can a man through his works attain unto righteousness? God will not compromise his holiness. We've established that. And if we are perfect and would be perfect, then one might think we could attain heaven. But here's the question. Do any of us have the capacity to live without sin? Do any of us have the capacity? I don't, I don't care who you are. You've probably done about a thousand things before you got to church this morning. Amen? I mean, if we were to look into the depths of your heart while you made that drive from your house to here, we'd probably find a little bit of malice. You'd find some in mine because you ought to have seen the way God was riding my bumper. Amen? You might find a little bit of impatience with your family when you're trying to get out the door this morning, or maybe them with you. You would find probably a little bit of selfishness that you exhibited this morning. I'm not necessarily just talking about the great and vast outward sins, because it doesn't take a lot to not measure up to God's standard of holiness. 
See, God is perfect, so anything short of perfection, that misses it. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know what the glory of God is? That's His person. That's who He is. Uh, The Bible speaks of His glory being of His presence and of His person. And we have all fallen short. It doesn't matter who you are. We're all sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. But there's some that would say, Well, preacher, I know that I am not perfect, but I believe that if I ask Christ to forgive me of my sins, then it's on me to live perfectly to maintain it. You've probably heard that before. I know I have. I was talking to someone. I was knocking on doors one day, and I I was talking to this person, and he made that very statement. He said, I believe that Christ saves you. But then I believe you have to work to maintain your salvation. Well, the Bible says explicitly in the book of Romans that if, it, if it's of works, it's no more of grace. And if it's of grace, then it's no more of works. But what does Bildad say about this issue? We see an uncompromised standard. We see an unbiased standard. But I want you to look with me down in verse number 11 and listen to what he says. He says, Can the rush grow up without mire? Now, this is a parable. Can the flag grow without water? These were Egyptian plants. Whilst it is yet in his greenness and not cut down, it withereth before any other herb. So are the paths of all that forget God, and the hypocrite's hope shall perish, whose hope shall be cut off, and whose trust shall be a spider's web. Now look a few verses back and see what he's saying. He says in verse 8, For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and prepare thyself to the search of their fathers. He says, Job, you need to think about the ancient wisdom and listen to this parable. And he says that a rush or a reed, or it was called a paper plant, most people believe, but it's called a rush here. He says a rush cannot grow unless it's in the mire, the slime and the filth. And a flag cannot grow unless it's in the water or in the swamp. He is giving a parable to the sinner. He says later that it's the hypocrite that he's speaking of. But it speaks of each and every one of us. And he speaks and Bildad says to us that God has an uncompromising standard, but it's an unbiased standard. But what are we left with? Do we have the ability to live righteously? Bildad says no, because it's an unattainable standard. He is likening the believer to the rush that grows in the mire. It is birthed out of the slime and the filth And the dirt, we see that it is born with a filthy nature. You and I, the Bible teaches, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You understand? We're not sinners because we sin. We didn't become sinners. We were born sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's who we are. We are born with a sin nature. That is the first and chief barrier for the sinner to fellowship with God, is that he is born into this world unrighteous. The Bible says that we must be born again. Well, why is that? We weren't born right the first time. I know we see the bumper stickers and smart Alex. Let me tell you something. There's going to be a lot of bumper stickers brought up someday at the great white throne judgment. Don't you think so? I know people think they're, they're funny and they're cute and they're smart, Alec, by putting these cute little sayings on their car. But let me tell you something. If we're going to be judged for every idle word, I think that includes the one we stick on the bumper of our car. And you've probably seen these bumper stickers, and I have too, that say, no thanks, born right the first time. 
Well, you can think that if you wish to, but if you're going to take God at His word, you're going to have to say, I wasn't born right the first time. I was born in sin the first time. The psalmist said, in sin did my mother conceive me. I was shapen in iniquity. We're born sinners in this world, just as the rush is born out of the slime. But not only because of how we're born, but because of how we live. He says that it withereth before any other herb. Do you realize we can maintain that we're a righteous person, but it won't take but just a few minutes of examining our life to see that we're not? I don't care who you are. I don't care what you do. I had a lady tell me one day, just right over here in the Life Center, she came over and she was talking to us about some things, and a lady that was there began to witness to her and asked her, said, have you ever been saved? you ever been born again? She said, oh, I volunteer. Well, that's not what anybody's asking. And she said, well, I go to go, I go to such and such church. Well, that's not what anybody asked. I mean, you can go to church so much that they don't even, they just lock you in when they're done. Amen. That won't save you. Uh, you can do all the charity that you wish to. That won't do a thing. Because you see, it's not a matter of outweighing the good against the bad. It's a matter of how do you measure up to God's standard? Do you come short in any way? I know I do. I believe you do too. Because the Bible says that you do. It's funny how people get offended when you say that they're sinners. I'm not saying you're a sinner. God's saying you're a sinner. <laughs> Just as He's saying I'm a sinner. I'm not saying that you're a bad person. I'm saying you're a lost person if you've never accepted Christ. I'm not saying you're immoral. I'm saying you're dead if you've never accepted Christ. It's not a matter of goodness. It's a matter of life and death. It's not a matter of whether you're moral. It's a matter of whether you've been spiritually awakened by the Spirit of God and born again into the family of God. That's what the discussion is. Bildad says, Job, there's an intrinsic and inherent problem with mankind. We are born in filth and we live in filth and we soon perish and die away. Boy, Bildad would have been a fun person to have around, wouldn't he? (laughs) About as fun as this sermon's been so far, but you hang with me. We see the holiness of God is spoken of. But Job begins to speak, and he begins to talk back. And Job gives no better answers until he gets to verse 33. Because Job presents not the holiness of God, but the hindrance of the sinner in coming to God. Now, this is crucial. I want you to get this this morning, because you'll find that the very things that Job claims to be futile are the very arguments and the very reasoning that mankind uses uh, to try to justify himself with God. And I want you to notice that, first off, uh, Job speaks of the abundance of of our sins. Look at it with me. At the beginning of the chapter, uh, Job looks at Bildad and he makes this statement in verse number three. He says, if he will contend with him. Now, he's just said, how can a man be just with God? How is it possible to be just with God? And he says, if you contend with God, you cannot answer him one of a thousand. We have a pretty easy and pretty good way of making excuses for our sin, don't we? Isn't it amazing the lengths to which people will go to justify their own sins? Listen to me. The whole issue of sodomy today, and it's not homosexuality, it's sodomy. That's the Bible word for it. You say, why do they use homosexuality? Because they want to make it close to homo sapien and make it seem like a human behavior. Why do they call it an alternate lifestyle? Because they don't want to call it sin. But the Bible calls it sin. It's sodomy. Uh, isn't it amazing the lengths to which people will go to? Uh, the Bible says uh, that they have turned natural affection unnatural in the book of Romans. 
I mean, you can look in nature and see that sodomy is not acceptable. I mean, I'm not a smart person, you understand. I'm really not. But I do understand that if you're going to have puppies, it's going to take a boy dog and a girl dog. Right? Right? I mean, it's going to take a boy dog and a girl. If, if, you're gonna, if you've got a cat and, it's going, and you want kittens, it's going to take a girl cat and then just not... Not paying attention to it for 15 minutes, it seems. <laughs> no, it's going to take a girl cat and a boy cat. But they will go to such great lengths to justify their sin. We do it too. Chances are, the more talking you have to do about something, the more wrong you are. Haven't you found that to be true? You ever listen to someone trying to explain why they did something, and about 10 minutes into the explanation, you realized it wasn't you they were trying to convince, it was themselves? That's what we have in the nature of mankind. But we're, we get pretty good at it, making excuses for ourselves. You know what Bildad says to Job? Bildad says to Job, you're born in sin, you're born unrighteous. And Job says, Bildad, I know that. But how can I become just with God? Because even if I could explain one sin, God would have a thousand more that I'd have no excuse for. It's amazing how we see sin in the life of others, but not in our own lives. It's amazing how we see problems in the life of others and not in our own life. Do you know God sees problems in all of us? I don't care who you are, your sin is not hidden from God. God sees your unrighteousness. And it's amazing how we think we can pull the wool over God's eyes. God knows what you've done. He knows. It comes invitation time. We all start lying to the Holy Ghost and saying that we really haven't done this wrong or that wrong. Who are we lying to? We're lying to the one that knows the thoughts and intents of our heart. We're lying to the one that can pierce to our very soul and being. We're lying to the one that is not inside time but is outside and lives in eternity. We're lying to the one who yesterday and tomorrow is just as present as the today to him. And we're trying to convince him that we were right in what we did. Maybe we could explain one away, but we've not got enough time, nor enough effort, nor enough excuses to explain away every sin that we've committed. Uh, you may have a good reason why you did this, but there'll be a thousand more, and it just takes one. Uh, the Bible likens the law to a chain, and you break one, you might as well have broken every commandment. Uh, if a man's dangling by a chain, it don't matter which link you break, you're going to fall. And you may not broke every commandment, but if you broke one, you stand at all with a holy God. You may be able to make excuses for some of your sin, but one of these days you're going to stand accountable for all of it. He speaks of the abundance of sin, but in verse number 4, he speaks of the strength and wiseness of God. He speaks of the authority that God has. There's some that would say, I would explain away my sin. But then there's others that would say, I will just resist God and live life on my own terms. And Job goes through a, a, a discourse through several verses of, of explaining the might and the power of God. Uh, but notice what he says. He said, No man that hath withstood him or stood against him has ever prospered. Let me tell you something. I'm going to try to make this as plain as I can. Uh, you can buck up against God, but one day you're going to answer to Him. You can hold out against God. But you hold out, and one day there'll be no more holding out. It's funny, camp time is coming soon, and at camp time, 
Sometimes you can see, and I, and I want you to hear me out what I say because I don't want to be misunderstood. Sometimes you can almost see the moving of the Spirit of God on children. And I don't mean seeing a, some kind of apparition or a dove. What I mean is by the way they respond. I've seen kids so white-knuckled I thought they were going to bend a folding chair in two. I've seen kids that were uh, just uncontrollably weeping that did not go to an altar. I've seen kids that it looked like they were going to bite their tongue in two, but they would not go. And they're holding out and holding out and holding. Do you know we do that as adults? We just usually we've got enough self-restraint that we don't show it. There's people, and there might be people in this room today that God's dealing with you about your salvation, but you're holding out. And you're holding out, and you've held out for a long time. Go ahead and hold out a little longer. You'll die and go to hell. Hold out a little longer. You'll win. But in the winning, you'll lose. Because no man, no man that's ever stood against him has prospered. He is God, whether we recognize it or not. We are going to answer to Him whether we like it or not. One of these days, all the excuses will be gone, and it'll be nothing. We'll be laid bare and naked before God Almighty. And He's going to look upon us and He's going to judge us. What will that day be like? We see not only because of the abundance of our sins and because of the authority of God, but He speaks of the aptness of our nature. Look at the end of this chapter. This is fascinating to me. Listen to what Job says. Job says, well, let's say I could convince myself that I am not wrong. But look at verse number 30. He says, if I wash myself with snow water, you know, the Bible says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet shalt thou plunge me in the ditch and mine own clothes shall abhor me. Job is likening the sinner uh, to a man that is filthy but has cleansed his own self. Uh, someone that uh, has had dirty clothes on and filthy clothes on, and you see them all the time, you go up and down the street and you'll see people that have hit hard times, and you can tell, man, they're in a rough situation, uh, and they haven't showered in a while, and they're filthy and they're dirty, and their clothes are barely hanging on them. And Job likens the sinner to that man. And Job says, if through all my effort and through all my righteousness I manage to clean myself up, wash myself with snow water, make myself never so clean. You know what he's saying? As clean as I've ever been. If I labored and in my righteousness cleaned myself up. He says, as soon as I stood before God, I'd find myself thrown back into the ditch. My clothes would be filthy again. That's what he means when he says my clothes would abhor me. Uh, listen, because of the aptness of our nature, we cannot be just with God in, in and of ourselves. Let me tell you something. You may be able to make excuses for the sins you committed today, and maybe for the sins you committed yesterday, but if you live another 24 hours, you're going to sin again. It's our nature. We're bent towards backsliding. We're sinful. Uh, we turn everyone to his own way. I don't care who you are. You continue to draw breath. You're going to sin. You're going to mess up. You're going to fail in your life. And if you're trusting your own righteousness to make you square with God, what are you going to do about tomorrow? What are you going to do about the day after?
That's the thing that amazes me. I'll never understand why people would wish to believe in a work salvation. I couldn't live if I believed in a work salvation. How could you? It, it, it just the only thing that it convinces me is it convinces me they don't even believe heaven and hell are real. Because how could you live and not go mad believing that any moment when you sinned it could be your last moment and you die and go to a devil's hell? Listen to me. I'm saying that if you're depending on yourself, yourself is not good enough. If you're dependent on your righteousness, uh, you're out of luck because you're going to mess up just like I will. Job says these are the problems. I could name you ten more that he speaks of in the chapter, but I've, I've narrowed it to these three. He speaks of his own sin nature and, and he cries out. He says, how can a man be just with God? I know God's holy. God won't compromise his holiness. I know I'm wicked and I know I can't do anything for myself. So how is it that I can be just with God? Look at verse number 33. He pleads for someone. He says in verse number 33, Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that he might lay his hand upon us both. I'm going to be honest with you. I had to look up what a daysman was. Because you'll only find that word used once in the Word of God, and it's what's right on the pages before your eyes. What is Job saying? It's interesting that Job uh, vests his salvation in a person, isn't it? He does not say, if I could just be more righteous. He says, if there was a daysman, then I could be just with God. He does not say, if I could uh, start a church or give a bunch of money or live a moral life. He says, if there was a daysman, I could be just with God. You'll find that a daysman is an old word used. And let me use a modern word, and you'll understand it. It's the word mediator. You see, what Job is saying is he's saying God is distant and I am distant. I cannot traverse, I cannot travel this chasm of my own sin and unrighteousness. I cannot stand just and whole before God. He's so far away and I cannot get to Him. But if someone would come to me and be an arbitrator and a mediator, and stand between me and God. If there was but a bridge, then I could get to God. If there was someone that could stand betwixt us and reconcile our differences, then could I have fellowship with God. Listen, this may be a lot of build-up for a big letdown. It may not be the most dynamic, and if I've not done a backflip by now, you can bet I'm probably not going to do one. But could I say to you that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Job said if there was just but a man that could stand between me and God. I'm here to tell you there is such a man today. I'm here to tell you that God is distant from you. I'm here to tell you that your sins and iniquities have separated you from God. It's not that His ears are heavy that they cannot hear. It's not that His arm is shortened that it cannot save. It's your sin that's the problem. It's your unrighteousness that's the problem. You say, preacher, I don't like it. You may not like it, but it's the truth. And one day you're going to answer for it and answer to it. But there is a man that will bridge the gap between you and God. Let me give you three truths he says about him. Notice his position. A daysman 
betwixt us. Well, this would be the natural place of a mediator, Brother Ralph. A mediator isn't going to be somewhere far off in the distance. But a mediator would be someone, y'all would know him, and actually this word has these connotations too. Uh, The word also has the idea of an umpire. How many of you uh, have kids and you had to be umpire sometimes? Sure. Uh, Two people have a dispute. And there has to be someone that will go in between them. Someone that will stand. Here you are at a distance from God. You cannot attain unto God. You cannot be righteous. You have no capacity. It's been said before, and I kind of like this, the idea uh, that here we are standing at a distance from God. A large chasm of our iniquity lays before us. And as we walk down a road, we see on either side of us uh, the Ten Commandments, a stone tablet here and a stone tablet here. And we walk down thinking to build a bridge out of these tablets, wondering how we'll move them, wondering how we'll build it, wondering how we'll seal them. And we look and we see and we say, oh, the tablet is broken there. I can't use that. I've broken the tablet there. I can't use that. I've lied. The tablet is broken there. I've stole. The tablet is broken there. I've hated within my heart and I've murdered. Uh, The tablet is broken there. And in despair we cry and fall to our knees, look up towards the heaven and see a long cross standing there as a bridge across our iniquity. The Bible says that Christ Jesus has made an end of the law unto righteousness to everyone that believeth in Him. I'm saying Christ's position, just as He was on the cross, not quite in heaven, not quite on earth, suspended up above that He might be a bridge between God and man. That's the function for which Christ came. That's His position for the sinner. You have no capacity, but there's one that's willing to be a bridge. We see His position, but we see His pity. I like this. If there was a daysman betwixt us that could lay his hand on us both. <laughs> That's interesting to me. How did he lay his hand on us both? Could I say to you how he laid his hand on us both? <laughs> For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Behold, this shall be a sign unto you. A virgin shall conceive, not a young woman, not a young woman, not a young woman. A virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Which being interpreted is God with us. When he was incarnate into this world, he did not lose his deity He was just as much God in this world as He was in the world before. He was just as much God on the earth as He was on the throne. He was a hundred percent God. And if you don't believe it, you need to reread your Bible because He's explicit about it. He said, I and my Father are one. The Bible says, who uh, being in the form of God thought it uh, not robbery to be equal with God. Not to be part two of a trinity but to be equal with God. He was just as much God as God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit is just as much God as either one of them. He was 100% God. He never took His hand off of God. But what did He do? He had a title. In fact, it seemed to be the favorite title He used for Himself. Over and over and over again, He called Himself this. He did not call Himself a prince. He did not call Himself a king over and over and over again. But you know what He continually called Himself in His earthly ministry? He would call Himself the Son of Man. We see His pity. He was willing not just to put a hand on God, 
but to touch a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. Not just to put his hand on deity, but to put his hand on depravity. Not just to put his hand on the magnificent sovereign, but to put his hand on the poor man. That's a sinner. That's the kind of Savior that we have. Not one that was kept at a distance from the sufferings of this world, but one the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, the high priest that was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. I'm saying this today. I'm saying we don't have a God that just stayed up in the heavens, but we have a Savior that left the glories of an ivory palace, came to suffer as a sinner for you and me. That's the kind of Savior we have. We have one that knows what you're going through. One that knows how you suffer, knows how you feel. He's kept his hand on God, but he's reached out and put a hand on the sinner. Look at the power that he shows, and I'm, I'm done. Look at the next few verses. What does it do in the life of the sinner when we meet the daysman? The Bible says, let him take his rod away, verse 34, from me, and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him. Job had to say, but it is not so with me. But you and I, we can say something different. His power is the ability to reconcile. We don't talk about reconciliation a lot. I don't think we really understand it in its fullest capacity like we could. But reconciliation is the ability to bring together two parties, both to their own satisfaction. Uh, compromise is the ability to bring together two people and have them sacrifice part of their own desires. But reconciliation is the ability to bring together two people and they maintain their desires. How did Christ do this? An uncompromised standard. An unbiased standard, but an unattainable standard. Our abundance of sins hindered us from God, The authority of God kept us from being able to resist God and live by our own means. And the aptness of nature kept us from being able to live righteously and to maintain righteousness. What will the daysman do? How will he bring a reconciliation? Listen to what the book of Romans says, and I'm done. Romans chapter 3 and verse 24 says, <laughs> actually, let me, let me read verse 23. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You and me. We've sinned. We've come short of the glory of God. We're not righteous. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. That's a substitutionary sacrifice that takes away the penalty of sin. Does not cover it, but takes it away through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just. God can maintain His holiness. And the justifier. The daysman, because He substitutes His own righteousness 
is able to maintain the holiness of God, but is able to redeem the sinner. I'm saying to you that you don't have it within you. You can't save yourself. But listen, the price has been paid. If you'll only accept the full pardon of Calvary, God will establish the righteousness of Christ as your righteousness. When He sees you, listen, uh, when He sees you, He doesn't just see the blood. When He sees you, He sees His Son. He sees the Son of God. There is a daysman today. There is a way and a bridge to God. My question is, do you know the daysman? Have you stood at the reconciliation table and had your sins washed away? If you've not, there is a daysman today. There is a mediator and there is a way to God.